what would you advise people who want to start their fire journey? Mm. Like what what's what's the process like? I would say I, I see a lot of uh finance uh, like content creator, you know, they, they emphasize growing your income first and like don't worry too much about saving. But I, oh I, really? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay. They a lot of people say like if you if you save you know, ten percent of your three thousand is three hundred. What's that, right? Yeah, what's that? Nothing. It's like if you 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 have to focus on your income first before you know, like don't worry too much about savings. I think they have to go hand in hand. Um, for me, being a frugal person actually helps me. Before we begin the podcast, have you gotten your free ebook? It's called the Build a Six-Figure Portfolio Guidebook. Now, inside it, we share with you the tips and tricks to bring your stock investing skills to the next level. The best part, it's only 10 pages long and it's totally free. Whether you're on Spotify or YouTube, the link to download is in the description or you can go to www.com firl.co slash f-r-e-e or www.firl.co slash free. Hey guys, today I have with me Dylan from Shoulders of Giant, a very, in my eyes, popular Instagram account online where he shares his journey. He's also in the software industry. Yeah. Uh, very, very interesting. It's all the rage right now. So we'll be learning a lot about his life and his thoughts about money as well so welcome to the podcast yeah thanks for having me uh i would like to say that this is also an honor for me because this is the first time you're ever on a podcast yeah and uh i you know i think with this video or mm -hmm. this podcast we verify that you are not a bot right no one has <laughs> seen your face before now everyone uh knows what you look like you're a real person yeah. okay well actually like last time if you follow my account from the very beginning yeah then you will know that i used to own a youtube channel but then i stopped posting because I just got lazy. <laughs> but, right. But yeah, I used to post uh, YouTube content before moving to Instagram. I see. And then after that, my, my content became very more like, I feel it's quite niche. So it's easier to explain through text. That's and true. And I just suck at editing. So it's okay, man. <laughs> yeah. It's okay. So I kind of stopped posting on YouTube. But I still have hopes. Yeah. Want to continue YouTube, but like yeah, yeah. That mostly I'm on Instagram right now. Yes, so go 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 check it out. We'll shout out your your handle late, a bit later on. But um, you know, for context, everyone listening, I actually for most of my guests, I actually mm -hmm. do not do extensive research on you guys, and it's on purpose, right? Mm -hmm. You would think that I would want to find out everything about the guests. Actually, I do the almost the opposite. <laughs> okay. I do not know anything. So today we are going to learn about uh, Dylan's story and uh, maybe you can share with me how, uh, you know, what was it like, you know, before getting into this whole finance and software industry that you're in right now? What was it like? Well, I can tell you a bit of my background. So standard public school, primary, then secondary, then after secondary school, uh, took A-levels. Um, the hardest. I don't think the hardest. Really? I feel like the wow. hardest is like STPM. People who ah, yeah, go yeah, yeah, STPM is the hardcore. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, I took A-levels because at the time the I went to KDU, like a private college, they have like some scholarships based on your trial SPM results. I see. So I just took it. So you got straight A's? <laughs> for, for my trial exam. For your trial. Yeah. Your actual? Actually, my actual, I actually got one B, oh. which is like Chinese. Because ah, it, doesn't Chinese count, too hard. it doesn't count. It doesn't count. <laughs> yeah. 
But yeah, so I went to do A levels and then I went to the I went I actually studied in the US okay. for my degree. And then um after that I came back for a bit, worked one year, and then went back to the US to continue working. And then came back again during the pandemic. Um because of like various issues la, in the US and, and my work employment, all those. Came back in to Malaysia for a few years and uh, during the pandemic, basically, I still work for a U.S. remote company. I work remotely for a U.S. company. And then recently, early this year, around February, uh, I got another job in the U.S., but this one is on-site. I see. Yeah, so I'm currently working on-site in the U.S. Right. So it's like, and then now I'm back for holidays. Ah. Then I'm going back to the U.S. soon. Okay, yeah. so uh, pause that first. So... Were you always in software? Because all, all these jobs are all software related, right? Oh, yeah. So I actually did electrical engineering mm. um, for my degree. I studied in uh, LA, so Los Angeles, UCLA. Um, but I think around, so in US, the degree is about four years. Around third year like that, I knew I wanted to pivot more to software. So, um, but very funny, I, I, I work as a data scientist now. Yeah which is just like a fancy word to say you write code to predict stuff based on yeah. historical data. So you're just writing software to to create like models to do prediction. And I think around my third year of uni, because electrical engineering is mostly on hardware. So it's like, That's you know, true. like chip design and like circuits and stuff. But I knew I wanted to go into software because hardware, honestly, one, it's very tough. And two, the software industry at the time in the US is very, it's like booming. And there's, you can just check the trend that software engineers, they earn way more than other types of yeah. engineers, whether it's mechanical, civil, electrical. Easily, yeah. Yeah, so, and I was already very interested in software and then very funny, but I stumbled upon a Facebook ad. It was, I still remember, it was a Coursera uh, machine learning course ah. by Andrew Ng. He was one of the pioneers of uh, online education. He was the founder of Coursera. Mm -hmm. So, and I got a Facebook ad to take a machine learning course. It was free at the time. So I just took it. And when I took it, I just, I fell in love with machine learning. So for, for context, machine learning, it's, it's a new way of doing programming. So traditionally programming is like, you define the conditions. So it's, people call it like if else statements. Yes. So like, if A happens, then do this. If B happens, then do this. It's, it's human generated. It's it's a rule based programming. So like you tell the machine, uh, certain rules, and then it will execute based on those rules. But machine learning is is a uh, a bit different where, you give the, you create a model. Where you have the output prediction output, and then you adjust the weights. So let's say the the most simple example is like. Let's say you have a lot of data of like, two categories of dog pictures and cats. And then you give the model and you say, this is a cat, this is a dog, this is a cat from different angle, this is a dog from different angle. And the model will adjust the, we call it the weights, which is sort of like just a gradient. If you learn basic statistics, right? Y equals MX plus C, right? Yeah, so that's the, M, the, M yeah. is the gradient, right? Yes. So in machine learning, you are adjusting the M, the gradient based on the labels. And then after a while, after a lot of training data, your model can predict new set of data. So it can predict uh, like another image 
of a cat that it has never seen in its training data. So a different breed or something. Yeah, it can predict something. So it's a very different way of uh, programming from the past where it's rule-based and now it's uh, based on training data and you're fitting the you're fitting the function. Right. Yeah. So I thought it was a very powerful concept. So at that time, I was in my third year in my uni. So I went all in to just study more about machine learning. And then um, right after graduation, I straight away pivoted. I never entered as an electrical engineer. I straight away pivoted into data science. Right. So from there on, I was always doing data science. So it has been like eight years already. So wow. Um, but in between my data science, I had a few data science jobs already. In between there, I also took a master's and my master's was in computer science. But um, in computer science, data science is like a subfield of like computer mm, science. Okay. So yes. in my computer science master's, I mostly took uh, data science and machine learning classes. Right. It's all almost like interchangeable. Data science and machine learning, they're all like, it's they're similar. It's like, they are like umbrella, you know? So like, yeah. Machine learning is here, then data science is above machine learning, then AI is above data science. So AI covers almost everything because AI covers things like data science, but it also covers things like machine learning and then yeah. it covers like computer vision. It also covers like human-computer interaction. So AI is the giant umbrella and then down there got data science and then under data science got machine learning. Then under machine learning, maybe got the more uh, subtopics like like statistics and stuff. So when you started out in data science, what, what were the jobs that you were sort of involved in? I mostly, I, I first started off as like a associate data scientist already. So my first job was a data scientist, but at the entry level. So that was my first job. Um, mainly because I already took a bunch of data science classes online on myself. So not from the uni. And I did a few projects on my own. So... I highly encourage anyone who wants to go into like software and data science. Yeah. It's all about like what you have done, not really your certification. Yeah. Yeah. Like if you have no certification, but you can show that you did certain, certain like certain complicated projects. Project, yeah. Like you build a website to do prediction, you predict some weather of like, I don't know, Subang or KL and very accurate. If you can actually show that you have built that, that's, that's Mobile already Mobile. proven that you can do it, you know. You don't really need like a certification to show that you can do data science. Yeah, of course, you can show your what your GitHub commits and all that. I think people yeah. can from there they can see yeah. But were you doing that? Were you? Yeah, I was doing that already yeah. back in like undergrad. So building a portfolio, you know, building building apps and building things to show during interview, it really helps a lot. Rather than you know, I saw a lot of posts. I'm in a few like Facebook groups. You know, like there's this. Malaysian Facebook group for developers. Yes, yes, yes. You have a kaki, Dev kaki. Always got people say, should I take a master's? Should I take a master's? And I received a bunch of uh, similar questions in my Instagram. So people ask like, uh, should I take a master's to pivot into data science? Or like, I'm, or some people, they already have undergrad in like IT or computer science and they say, should I take a master's to get better job? And I always tell them, it's like, rather than take a master's, you should, Try to build up your portfolio, you know. Try to do something. Yeah, go build something instead of, you know, try to get another cert. Yeah. In, in terms of masters, I feel a lot of universities these days actually masters. You know, universities just wants to make money from yeah. masters. So it, for masters program, a lot of universities out there is, in terms of the curriculum, like what they teach you, it's actually low, very low quality. But if you say you want to use the masters as a, like a networking platform, then it makes more sense. 
but only if you get masters like you know Harvard, MIT, all those stuff. If you get masters from random uni, I feel like it's not, it's not worth it. I, I'm just curious, is there any type of things you should work on that would make your you know, someone listening to this is saying like, oh, yes, I will want to build my own portfolio. Mm-hmm. But are there certain type of things you work on that will make you more employable? Like, you know, maybe certain companies prefer these sort of projects. Do you have a thought process on the type of projects you should, should be working on? I mean, it depends on what field you want to enter. Like, like data science and machine learning is just a, it's a big word. Yeah. It's just like a high level concept, right? But data science and machine learning, you can, it can be applied into every industry because it's just statistics. It's just yeah. modeling. It's just doing prediction. And you can do prediction for finance industry, healthcare industry, even like car industry or any food industry also can, or logistic, everything. So let's say if you want to enter like a finance industry, then you go and stock a bit, you know, like, like let's say you want to work for whatever bank, you go to their, they, they sure got some innovation page, web page and say what they're doing. Maybe they are trying to uh, in, improve their customer service for their banking app, you know. Then you can, if you have ideas, you say like, oh, I create a chatbot where I go through this, this bank's website. I scrape their data. I go and copy their about page, their, their terms and conditions for, you know, for their credit cards, for their bank account. And I put it into a document and then I feed into this chatbot and this chatbot can retrieve these data yeah. of these uh, so-and-so bank's uh, information. So like, let's say I want to ask like, hey, what's the best credit card from bank X? And then your chatbot will say, hey, is this credit card and these are the, these are yeah. the conditions. Based on your history, yeah. based on... Yeah, if you can build this app and you're applying for a job in like, let's say a software engineer or whatever developer in the AI department of that company, then they'll be super impressed, right? They're yeah. like... You're already built, you're like halfway there of building a product that they are they want to build anyway. Or you're halfway there of building something that they maybe like an entire team is trying to build. Yeah. And they're like, they'll be super impressed because it's like, um, you know, it's it's already like what they want. So you're already like halfway in. So it depends on the industry. What 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 specific industry within data science that you were that, that you're in right now? Or may mm-hmm. or maybe when you started out. Let's start there first. Um I started off in the healthcare industry. Mm-hmm. So I used to work for WebMD, which is like the... Ah, yeah, the doctor. Yeah, the healthcare doctor. website. Ah, okay. Now I'm working more on the startup, but it's on the e-commerce space. Ooh, so, okay. yeah, trying to launch a, like an AI, sort of like a chatbot that incorporate all our proprietary data on like right. merchants, products. How, how, I mean, without revealing sensitive yeah. stuff, but how is it, it going to change the consumer experience? Like, uh, I'm not sure if you're working on a site or you're mm-hmm. doing the fulfillment part of e-commerce. I'm not sure, but um, how how will what you're doing be like improving the customer experience if you know that's what yeah. you're working on? Currently, it's mostly just um, so a lot of AI apps these days is to build like is to give each user a more like personalized. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So personalization can be. It's like there's no end to personalization because like as a person live their day-to-day life, they also accumulate more data. So like you might like Nasema three years ago, but maybe three years later, you like fun me or something, you know? So your your taste also change. And personalization is both like you, getting you to use the app 
and then collecting data from the user and then also changing the recommendations for the user. So uh, a lot of AI applications these days is to uh, give a more personalized experience to each user. So it's same for e-commerce. So imagine like if you are shopping and uh, the you have like a private shopper for you that knows you very well and knows uh, all the inventory of every online shops. They can order for you. They know like uh, which shop will arrive in like two-day shipping or two-week shipping and they know like when you need the product or they know like uh, you like certain brands, you don't like certain, maybe you have like nuances, you you don't like shoes that are too like vibrant color, mm, you want mm. more like matte colors and it knows everything about you and it can it can give you that precise uh, product that you want. So that is like the, the, the angle of uh, most of the AI applications is to do very precise personalization, which requires a lot of data from both the user end and also the world, because you need yeah. to collect data from the world to to give like good personalization and good like recommendations. Right. So a lot of AI applications these days is is to do that point to capture the value, and there of course there's other AI applications like you know like writing stuff or like yeah categorizing yeah. stuff and things like that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just curious. Today, someone who just graduated or about to graduate comes talk to you. Apart from telling the guy, "Hey, you should build like a portfolio." What are some of the, I guess, do's and don'ts, right? Like, what makes a good software developer? In in specifically data science, mm-hmm. what makes a good data scientist? I would say it varies a lot, depending on your goal. So it's right. like. It also depends if you are a data scientist for yourself, like personally, you just want to explore the world mm-hmm. or you're working for a company. And even if you apply jobs as a data scientist to companies, different company size would require you to do different things. For example, uh, maybe if you join a startup, a small company, they might require a data scientist to know everything. Everything down from how you, how you collect data. So like you might need to know how to build a, like a web scraper, a data scraper to go to certain websites to collect certain data. They you want to clean the data, uh, build the models, deploy the model, and then monitor the model. So they might need someone who do everything end to end. Whereas if you go and join a like a giant company like I don't know Google, Grab, Shopee, very specific. Yeah, they might just uh, hire a data scientist to do a very specific task. Maybe they will just ask you to, uh, you know you handle the reviews, like maybe Shopee app, you handle the reviews, you build a model to just detect got any like vulgarities in the reviews. That's it. Right. And maybe you just do that one small part. So it's like, it, it really depends like what company you apply for. Every company, they they actually hire for a bit differently. Um, of course, if you, if you go to a smaller company, maybe you will learn more end-to-end and Depends on depends what you ask from the company. Maybe you get equity or those yeah. for smaller companies. Maybe you'll learn more. Maybe salary lower, but you get equity. So it's like it's up to you to um what what the trade-offs you want. Yeah. Um there's no like right or wrong. Um, depending like where you want to start first on like your early of your career. As a data scientist, if you are doing it individually, then it mostly just depends on your curiosity. Some some people do data science. Like I, I sometimes do data science projects as a hobby. So it's just I just let my curiosity lead me. Like sometimes I would just go and 
look at the website, look at the web for any like uh, available data on properties. Like let's say I want to do some prediction of house price in the future. And maybe I have a hunch that let's say a, a housing township, um, I check historically how many, how many schools within 5km, how many uh, 7-Eleven within 5km. And then let's say I have 20 years of historical data, maybe like Subang. I have like 30 years of housing price data. And every year I check whether how many schools are built, how many international schools are built, how many, how many toll connected to that area. Then I, I project it out. Then I build a model to maybe predict new housing township. I like, see. I don't know where like Gamuda Cove or Elmina. Like maybe you can predict the housing price like 30 years later based on like these number of features on the model. And these are more like hobby projects. So yeah, so data scientists, if you are building models of, for your own, then like the, the world is your oyster. Yeah, you can do yeah. anything you want. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And there's also like concepts of like, you are data scientists on your own, but you work for yourself, either like consulting, you are like a one-man consultant, or you, you build an app, let's say, and then you charge like, you're like a one-person uh, software as a service team. Yeah. Like you can build a website where uh, people upload PDF and they will extract all uh, let's the say information, you, yeah. let's say you can upload receipts and the, your model will, will tabulate all items above $100 and then and then give a total to you and then you build that as a service you say okay I built this model now everyone who wants to use this service pay me like $5 a month then you create a website got login and all those then it's like you know like for credits then you, know, you use any SaaS software they were like it's like that yeah, yeah and then you can just build this thing and then you are basically a one one man developer one person developer do end-to-end -end software service and you can work on you can be a business on your own so 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 it's up to you whether you as a data scientist or a software developer these these days um software developers can can go can dwell into the applied data science part and data scientists can go also go into the software development part because they are both like they are not they are not exactly the same, but they both require each other to build a finished product. Well, so, what is the difference between what you said, software dev and, and data applied science. data science? Well, what exactly is the difference? So in the past, right, software developers, they they have a few categories because software developers are so big, right? There are people who build websites, there are people who build databases. Then last time the developers, those who built like the designing of the website, they call them front end. People ah, who build the back people end. who build the databases, like you know, you store like let's say you use Instagram, right? They have to store your pictures, they have to store your captions, hashtag, your history, your your chat message, and these messages have to be stored on the database. And the traditionally, there's a sort of called back end engineer that do all this. And for small companies, they have full stack engineer, so they do front end and back end, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then. And then there's other kind of engineers that like, let's say DevOps engineers, which in the past handles all the servers stuff. And like, maybe you have like certain server that run a, a, like a microservice, like a process. Let's say, let's say Instagram, certain picture need to be processed on the external server. Like maybe you want to put like a face filter on an image. It needs an external server to, to process that image. Then maybe like another engineer will handle that server. So, so applied data science is quite similar to 
it's more similar to backend and like DevOps, where you spin up a service of like data science service to be used on your product. So, and they have different different names for all these uh, engineers. Um, in in the industries, if you if you build and like apply, you build these servers to do all these uh, data science services. Um, sometimes your title is called machine learning engineer, which is software engineer plus deploying uh, data science or machine learning models. But yeah. for someone who is a software engineer, they can transition to machine learning engineer relatively easy. So it's like, they just need to learn a bit of like how to deploy the model. Because right. in, in the, when you deploy applied data science models, it's, you don't need to, to understand like the, the math, the deep math behind it. You just need to know how to deploy it. You know, it's, it's almost like, it's almost like you need to know how to drive the car and like the basic things that like, you know it's like so, technicians so, and engineers are yeah, different yeah. you need to know right. like to change the oil and fill up the tank yeah, yeah. tank already you don't need to know exactly how the engine works yeah yeah, yeah. They, they, I mean, these are the people closer to the, the use case part yeah, right yeah. how do you actually use it yeah I, I think one question uh, a lot of people outside the data science field will want to know is there's so many um Machine learning programs out there. So, of course, the most famous one is OpenAI, right? ChatGPT. You have Bart. You have recently announced Grok from Twitter, which I haven't used yet. Mm -hmm. And do you have a thought on who's going to win? Because if we look at the history of software, one of the things that we see, apart from geographical constraints, are, right, is that it's a winner-takes-all kind of situation. So, there was your MySpace and all that, but Facebook won. Right, yeah. there was uh, Vine, blah, blah blah, TikTok, Instagram. You know, uh, you exclude, of course, China, right? Because mm -hmm. that one is uh, artificial barrier. So, do you have thoughts on who's going to win, and or if you don't, how would you sort of break down the the good and bad for each of these three yeah. at least? To me, I I don't think there would be like a one person being really far ahead for now. Um, maybe in the next one, two, three years, OpenAI is still ahead. The 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 thing with OpenAI is that they have all the talent there. They in 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 uh Silicon Valley or like San Francisco, right? They have a thing where once like a sizable number of like researchers, Engineers, like yeah. the top people, go to the company, like they start working that company. It will just keep attracting more and yes, more of the yes. top people, and a lot of the, a lot of the top people in the AI field, they all know each other. So when they see their friends go and work at OpenAI, they also want to join. And if you look at the past like five years, OpenAI has been very successfully coaching all the top researchers from Google, from Facebook, from everywhere to work at there. And somehow they are forming a almost Click. like cult like uh yeah. company where like. They are so Sam's friends. Yeah, they are so strong and like they are like almost beyond like company, you know, culture they where where like they are beyond the monetary value. They are there to to like actually push forward a mission. Whereas in other companies, maybe like Google or Twitter or Facebook, you can sense that that there's lack of this uh even Twitter? Yeah. Really? Even with Elon. Twitter maybe got, but okay. like they are too small. So there's, there's too much negative connotation with Twitter that a lot of researchers, you know, researchers, they also come from 
very diverse background. So it's like, but but Twitter is making a in in their in their style of like reasoning. Yeah, you know, you know, Elon is like going all oh, like free speech. You know, a lot of minorities don't want regulation. Like that, you know? yeah. yeah, so it's like if you are a researcher that don't really align with like what Twitter's mission is, then you don't want to go and work there. And you know, also it's like people they 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 when you have a lot of options, right? You are like okay, I don't want to go somewhere too controversial like Twitter. And only and 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 more so that the like Elon right that your boss is is openly saying that you know this place is only for hardcore workers you know no yeah. time for families no time for work life balance. Yeah. I I always I yeah. sorry sorry to cut you off, but I always remember that photo of like before and after Elon right before Elon he saw a bunch of uh, you know well dressed uh, women you know <laughs> they look like they're all in HR and then <laughs> after Elon came in a bunch of yeah uh, <laughs> with like yeah yeah. Yeah. The shirts are all over the place. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Elon gave that image where it will only attract like single young men to yeah, go yeah, there. Yeah. So, but but researchers come from every walk of life. A lot of them, you know, have families. Some, some have from different different diverse background. You know, they they see this image where Elon project of like, oh, you know, this place is only for hardcore people. If you're not hardcore, yeah. you know, if you don't out. sleep on the yeah. floor. You know, yeah. Like, if you don't sleep on the floor, you don't work till three a.m. Uh, you 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 don't belong here. It's it's a very off-putting image for a lot of people. Yes, yeah. uh, even in America. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel like it's an off-putting image even for a yourself. lot of people. Okay. No, for me, if if I truly believe in like Twitter's vision, maybe okay, you know, okay, it's fine. Yeah. You know, still young can go and like hustle a bit, but a lot of researchers are not at that level already. A lot of them are, yeah, forties, fifties, yeah, maybe they maybe. Starting new family, got a baby at home. You know, they they want some time, some work life balance. They but they also want to achieve like a mission. And oh my, I you if you look at their policy, still very work life balance friendly. Really? Yeah, okay. The 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 smart How, part yeah, about mm-hmm. OpenAI right is that their work policy very work life balance. Uh, they emphasize work life balance, but they still encourage people to work more. Not not by forcing, but just by having such a strong culture. Culture, you know. So it's like. The people actually want to work more, not the boss ask them. You know, so yeah. there's a there's a huge difference between the boss pressuring you to work more and you actually want to work more. Yeah, and and if you have employees that actually want to work more, right, your company is like golden because yeah. it's like now it's like your your employees are so motivated and you don't even need to motivate them. Well, what do you think of the whole uh, Sam Altman resigning and then suddenly he's back? Or in a space very, of less than what three days, something yeah, like that. I followed the whole thing very closely. Yeah. So what do you what do you think? It was very weird. I feel like mostly it comes from the bot. The bot are worried. Microsoft, right? The, no, no, the OpenAI open board. Right. Okay. They are worried uh, that Sam Elman has too much power. Um and they are worried that he is, you know, commercializing the the entire OpenAI's product too fast. So OpenAI was started as a nonprofit lab. And their their goal was always to create uh AI, AHGI products, and then slowly release it to the world. And their goal was never to make profit. But then about three years in, they realized that they need money to like train all these models. All these models are trained on really expensive like GPUs. So they need all this money. Then they changed the structure a bit where they changed to a for-profit. And then after they launched ChatGPT, they realized that a lot of people want to use the product. So they pivot into a very product-heavy company instead of research-heavy. They used to be very research-heavy. 
you know, before ChatGPT, actually, not many people knew about OpenAI. Yeah, yeah. me included, right? <laughs> I mean, I'm not in the yeah. field, so. But I knew OpenAI from very early on. I've met Sam Elman a few times. So talk to him. He's a very, he's a very long-term thinker, but he's also very good at, um, he's good at trying to find the win-win situations. And then sometimes you might feel like he's manipulating you, but he will, he'll try to persuade you in a way that, you know, this is for the greater good. You'll feel like this is for the greater good. So he's very good at that. And he's very long, he's a very long-term thinker. And maybe the board felt that, you know, it's moving too fast. And they, they took a, a, a drastic decision. I think the board underestimated the loyalty the employees had for Sam Elman. They, I think the board predicted that if they fire Sam Elman, nothing will happen. Like the company will just go on and like everything will be fine and Sam Elman will be out. But what they didn't predict is that as soon as Sam Elman was fired, the employees all were. the employees threatened to quit. And and I think the board never saw that coming. Mm-hmm. So they never knew Sam Elman had such a strong power in the company over the employees also. And yeah, so it's that. So, I but think. now if I'm, uh, I've not been following, but last I remember that now he's, he's back in, but in a more Microsoft capacity, right? I remember. No, they, they, they went back and forth, but I see. ultimately he's back. Ultimately, it went back to almost like nothing changed. After, after all the drama, it went back to almost like nothing changed. Um, they are still discussing the change of structure of the, the whole you know, non-profit governing a for-profit. Yeah. They changed three board members. They used to be six. Now it's three personally. Yeah. So they removed the three board members that chose to fire Sam. I think a yeah. few of them came out with an apology on Twitter also, right? To say that it was a mistake. One person, so Ilya, Ilya Satskiller, he was the chief scientist of OpenAI. He also joined the board to fire Sam. And then he later on uh, said that he made a mistake. But he was still removed from the board. And right now, sort of in limbo. No one knows what what is his position in the company now. Right. Yeah. So it's... I think he's in an awkward position because it's like he tried to fire Salman and now he's back. So it's like if you choose to work together again, there, there'll be like some awkwardness. Up because yeah, like, I think there'll be a bit of <laughs> trust yeah. issues. Really. It's like you tried to fire me and then now I'm still trying to work with you. So it's like, yeah. I, yeah. So it's a bit it's a bit weird, but he's still at OpenAI. But I, I, I'm hearing, okay, again, I, I, I'm only looking at this from a distance, mm-hmm. right? What I'm hearing is that Google's catching up really fast. And I'm not sure how true that is. So maybe from your professional perspective, you can shed light. I would say if Google wants to catch up, they can. But so far, they are not showing signs that they they are they are surpassing OpenAI. They they have shown signs that they caught up to the level. So they really recently released a model called Gemini. Yes, and they have two versions: Gemini Pro and Gemini Ultra. So Pro is already live on BART. They are, they are ChatGPT competitor, which is BART. So Gemini Pro is already uh, out on BART. And then Gemini Ultra, still not yet out. And then they released some benchmarks on Gemini Ultra, which, which reach about the level of GPT-4. But you have to remember that GPT-4 was released this year March. And Google released Gemini this year, December. Mm-hmm. So after 
nine months. After nine months, Google released a model that is just on par with GPT-4, which is not very promising, right? When you are like a trillion dollar company and you have like a few thousand researchers, OpenAI has like 500, 500 researchers versus your like 7,000 researchers or 10,000 researchers. And you release a model that is on par with GPT-4 after nine months. So I don't know if Google still has something up their sleeve or anything, but if they, they have some models that is surpassing GPT-4 by a huge margin, they should come out and say it because like the industry is like looking at Google and say why they haven't catch up or why they haven't surpassed. Um, but I would say Google, if they want to, you know, like beat GPT-4, they can, they have to. But I mean, they have the ingredients. Yeah, they have the ingredients. They are Google. Yeah, they, they have, have the, the internet, data. Though. They have YouTube data. They have like Google search data. They have everything. But I think, I think Google's problem is not they, they are lacking of ingredients, talent, or even money. It's, it's, more, it's more like they are, they are lacking some management direction, like, direction yeah. you know. Like the, the top-down management, the top-down mandate is not strong enough. Like I have a lot of friends who work at Google and the culture at Google over the years have reached a level where it's very like complacent. Google used to be the, the company that innovates. Now they're more like just collecting paycheck. So... You know, it's very natural, yeah. Yeah. But there's a, there's a truth in that smaller companies move faster and, and you can cultivate the company culture better in smaller companies. When a company is too big, the, the culture is lost. It becomes more of a, you know, you go there as like, you know, they call it like a golden handcuff. You go there, get good money, get free food, you know, insurance covered. You know, Google even like sponsor things like, uh, like IVF, egg freezing, all those. And like if if like one person passed away, they transfer all your shares to like your spouse and then they add on some more. So it's like, it's almost like a set for life already. So it's like, why do you want to work so hard? You get into Google, it's like you're set for life. You're like, why do you want to work so hard? You know? Yeah. So a lot of Google, a lot of people, their goal is to work at Google. But once they work at Google, they're like, okay, I, I'm chilling now. You know? <laughs> it's like, so speaking of this, I think one thing that I keep hearing a lot I'm not even sure whether it's a good question, but people say that, uh, you know, they, a lot of people are not encouraging their kids to, to code or go into computer mm-hmm. science. And then there's also a group of people that say, look, with, with, with AI and all that, wouldn't this, these uh, programs disrupt the job of the coder? Mm-hmm. Uh, I've spoken to some coder friends and they say, yeah, that's kind of true. But I've spoken to some that says, well, yeah, but who's going to have to maintain these programs? So I don't know where you sit on this. Uh, will, will, will coders and software engineers be disrupted? If yes, like to what extent? I would say if coders are disrupted, then they'll be, they'll be at the far end of like one of the last to be disrupted. Because yeah. like, if you can code, if you can disrupt like uh, programmers, then you can disrupt every other job. Too. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. And I would say there's no harm in learning to code because coding is not about it's not about you know the write, writing code you know coding is about logical thinking that's right yeah it's not about I'm learning this and this like syntax you know I have to put I put brackets here or put semicolon here it's not about that you know it's like it's it's a it's a it's a way of thinking it's like coding helps you visualize like like system design like x x go in and then like X plus N come out. So it, it helps you think about uh functions and like uh steps. 
and in terms of like pipeline, so like in the like let's say you have raw data come in, then go through this function, become this data, and then go through another function, become this data. So you're you're learning mostly like logic, logical thinking, and you're not learning, you're not learning the code. The code is arbitrary. So even in coding, there's so many different languages. There's like Python, C, right. JavaScript. And all the syntax is a bit different. But if you know the logical design or the sequence of the code, you can actually shift from language to language very easily. And now with like things like ChatGPT, right? You can convert yeah. any code to any code. So you the the coder in the future will become the programmer in the future will become more of a like an architect, like an orchestrator. So like, like you define the sequence, you define the logic design, and then maybe the AI will write the code for you. So in a sense, you are coding in, in natural language. Yeah. So you say, uh, I want this, 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 but before this, I want the data to be like that. And then from before like that, I want, I want to collect it from A, B, and C, and this and that. And then you define the whole entire architecture and the pipeline. And then the AI or whatever program will just execute it and create it for you in, in the code. So as a programmer, you are learning the architecture design, you're learning the logical thinking. So I still see there's high value in, in fact, I tell everyone to learn how to code. Yeah. Try, try, try Python first because Python is, I always, I always tell people Python is as close to English as possible already. So other, other programming language is a bit more like messy. So like C++, JavaScript, a bit more messy, but Python, very simple already. It's, it's almost like English. Right. So, yeah. Right. So that's why you get people to start. I, I one question people will be asking so so some people might feel it's too daunting to get into coding and all that. Like where do you see the role of non-AI people or non-coding, non-CS people uh playing a role in this new world basically, right? Where AI will be part of everything. Like even like what we do. I I tell my guys and anyone like I would rather stop paying rent or electricity before I st- I stopped my subscription to ChatGPT because of how reliant we are on them on quite a lot of things. What if you were non you were giving advice to a non-coder, non-AI guy, what would you say? How how would you what would you tell them to do? I would say you have to maintain a certain level of curiosity and willingness to try new things. There's a lot, there's so many uh programs and applications out there that require absolutely no coding already. Um, even back like five to ten years ago, there's already drag and drop website creation. Yep, yep. And like, and people can say that I don't know how to code a website, or you can just go use like Wix or Squarespace or whatever, and and build a drag and drop website, and learn at at least the 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 concept of like where to put a drop down menu, where to put like images, and those don't require coding. You know, it's like whether you you are willing to take the step to go and learn all this. And similarly, there are a lot of like no code tools out there. Things like there's this thing called Bubble where you can code applications without any coding. It's drag and drop. So um, if you can, you know, if you're young at the time, you do paint, you know, drag and drop objects. If you know how to do that, you can do these kind of things. It's more about whether you are curious enough and yeah, you, had, you know, you're willing to take the time to go and spend some time to learn all these things. And it doesn't require any coding. It requires some effort, effort, but it doesn't require any like coding. And in terms of daunting or not, I don't think it's that daunting. Just just try an experiment. And there's a lot of uh uh things that 
non-technical people can go and learn about. Even even in like things like ChatGPT on learning how to prompt. I'm also really surprised a lot of people still don't know how to prompt properly. Like prompting is almost like like an art more than a science. Yes. And it can be learned by anyone. Doesn't need to be a programmer. What are your, what are your top tips? Sorry, because I, I think a lot of you have opinions on this, but what, what are your top tips for prompting? Well, I think it's very established now. Um, be clear and concise. Um, just say, give examples. So there's thing called like one shot prompting and few shot. Few shot is like you give an example. So like, let's say you want ChatGPT to, to give a format of like an output. Let's say you want the format to be, let's say you give uh, an essay about whatever, like a news article. Yeah. Then you want the output to be extract all person's name in this article and then put it in a format where name one equals like Abu, name two Ali, name three Siti and this format. So you put the example in the prompt. Say, here is the article, extract all names in this format, name one, this, name two, this, name three, this. And then you give the example in the, in the prompt. Of course, you be as clear as possible in your prompt. Um, you can use uh, languages like it's like it's been proven to say like things step by step or um, somehow got one it's like take a deep breath actually improves the, the output take a deep breath think step by step um, few short prompting uh, be concise yeah, these, these are the basics if you want the, the, the output of the prompt the output of like ChatGPT to be more accurate then you can insert like context so let's say you, you want to ask uh, ChatGPT to extract some information about, I don't know, some news or some article. Then you put the article as the context. Yeah, now instead, you can upload a PDF. Yeah, right? Instead of just like asking it directly because it would just search its training data and it might, it might hallucinate. But if you give the context, then, then it will just refer from the context. Yeah, so, but there are a lot, of, there's so many prompting tips out there. I, like, I think a lot of it is just just rely on your imagination, right? Yeah, but you'll be surprised that a lot right. of people don't yeah. even know how to rely. They, they don't know a prompt. They're like, they'll just ask directly and then they get the wrong answer. Then they're like, this thing sucks. They're like, ChatGPT yeah. sucks. Just ask better questions. Yeah. So it's like, you have to learn how to prompt. So prompting is like, it's, it's not going to go away that soon because like, like language is a very tricky thing and they cannot, when, when they build, when, peop, when researchers build all these like AI models, they themselves don't know like what certain words will activate certain parts of the of the weights of the model. That's so, right. So like let's say if you let's say you are asking something, some people say it's very dangerous to ask ChatGPT about medical diagnosis. But there are a lot of researchers, a lot of research paper that show that if you put, if you ask the question properly, the, the output of ChatGPT medical diagnosis is actually very accurate. And it aligns with like all the expert doctors on in terms of their, their answers. So, so a lot, there's, there's two camps. Some say that uh, we call them LLMs, large language models, like ChatGPT. LLMs are unreliable. Some people would just, one camp would say LLMs are unreliable. The other camp is like, the human just don't know how to prompt. Yeah, know? yeah. So, I mean, but it's a bit of both. So I guess, I guess I can imagine a world one day where, so, I mean, part of the reason why I guess and you see whether I'm correct or not, but part of the reason why people were anti-LLM will say that is because you ask a question on uh, OpenAI or whatever, they can only see the text, right? And even if you add context, it's just more text. 
Mm. Or if you upload a PDF, it's just more some images or designs or whatever. Mm. But I can imagine a world where you can ask a question verbally or even through a video where ChatGPT can see your facial expressions. They can see your voice. They know the accent that you, you use. They know mm-hmm. the way you speak your language. And, oh, this guy is Malaysian. So when you say yeah, certain yeah, yeah. words, that's what it's trying to mean. Yeah. And then the AI can adjust to that. Basically like a human, right? Like why yeah. a doctor can presumably right now give you better advice is because you can see your reaction. Yeah, you can yeah. see how, how you say a word. I can imagine the world where ChatGPT is that good. It will it will reach that point though, and yeah. it's the the ingredients are there already to reach that point of like, it can see it can interpret like facial expression like a person and everything. It's it's a matter of engineering, uh, process now to like combine it together, yeah. but there are a lot of models out there that can already do it. Yeah, that can read facial expression, can read like uh body languages and stuff like that. So it's more of like piecing it together, and Making it a product. It's time. It's just yeah. a question of time. Making it a product and see whether, you know, people want to pay for it. Yeah, yeah. You know, a, lot of, a lot of these things that you can imagine as a product, sometimes maybe the market just don't want it. Yeah. I mean, if the market don't want it, then then there's no incentive to build it because there's no like, there's everything, anything of the day requires some form of like profit for it to, to keep to on jalan, going. Yeah, 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 yeah. So like the market have to, have to show that they want this first. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, thank you for sharing a lot of your thoughts on, on AI. I'm sure there's a lot more. Yeah. Maybe I'm asking the wrong <laughs> question, so I cannot extract more out of you. Um, but let's talk a little bit about your financial journey, right? Because mm. um, I think everyone knows when you say that you work in software, you work in data science, you know, you've, you've paid well, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yes, even though maybe you live in the US, things mm-hmm. are a bit more expensive there. Which part of the US are you now? West Coast, uh, LA, Cal- LA California, right? Yeah. Um, what got you on this financial journey, right? Because I know one of the key things on your mm-hmm. bio is, you know, fire, right? And then you have fat fire as well. So maybe you start with your fire journey. What, what was that like? Well, I was raised to be very frugal. Um, as I can remember, I didn't grow up very poor. My family was like maybe middle income to like yeah. upper middle income. But somehow, like my parents were very frugal. So it kind of instilled like a frugal mindset to myself. And also combined with like the, like when I was young, I always had a sense that I want some, you know, individual autonomy. I want to be free. Yeah. Like maybe it's, uh, you know, I, I was a second child. So I have an elder Oof. brother and younger sister. Maybe it's like, you know, they call you're it second, second child. Middle. You're a middle child, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? middle child. You know, they say middle child syndrome. They, they, they always want to they like, get anything. Be, right? They want to be independent, you know? Yeah. So like, uh, I always knew that I want to like study overseas and everything. So I wanted to like, just be independent on my own. And I, I didn't want to rely on a lot of people. So um, when I was like studying in the US, I was super frugal. So even even after graduation, I was still very frugal. Like for the first, I would say like first six years after graduation, I never had a single room in my life. So single I never, what? I never stayed in a private room in my life until like six years after graduation. Private room. So like own room. I have my own room. Oh, oh so you share room. Yeah, share room all my life. So I mean, it's also quite expensive in in 
yeah. Kelly and S- or SF, right? I mean, it's yeah. quite... But a lot of people, their concept is like, you know, if you're a graduate and you're working, even in Malaysia, yeah, yeah, yeah. if you're a graduate and working and if you still share room, they'll like, kind of like look down on you. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Even in Malaysia, if like, if, if you earn like, fresh grad, like, like 2008 to 3000 ringgit, they expect you to have your own room ready. Yeah. You know, yeah. they're like, if you share room, they're like, this kind of weird. <laughs> but I shared room, three person, one room, like for like six years like that. And I, I save every, I save a lot of money um, like after graduation. I think because I just wanted to, one, just be, be independent. I, I stumbled upon the concept of fire about during university. So that was, I guess people were talking about like buying stocks at the time. This was in like 2015, 2016. And then the stock market, um, I, I still remember like Amazon, uh, Tesla, Netflix, all those were moving up very fast. And people, was, there was like chatter all around. And so I also stumbled upon like, at that time it was in the US. So my first investing experience was with this app called Robinhood. Very yeah. infamous app. Yeah. But they made it very easy to invest. Like you can just like deposit like $50, $100 and you can start investing. So I just like, you know, start started to buy some uh, individual stocks. And then fast forward a few years after working. After working, I think for, for frugal people, if you, if you save uh, a substantial amount of your paycheck every month, right? Naturally, you would think like where to put it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, you're like, I'm saving this amount. Like, why am I putting in the bank getting like so such low percentage? Then you would think like where to put it. Then then you will go and find like where to put it. Then initially you are, of course, people will tell you like, yeah, just go and invest in stock market. So I think, I think the financial education among like, um, at least in the US, among my peers, uh, much higher than here for sure so people talk about investing very like freely and commonly versus here maybe a few years ago no one really talked about investing so in terms of investing Malaysians mindset traditionally is like just put in FD or know? property no? yeah, just put in FD or property is uh, maybe like 10 years ago now it's like hard also <laughs> like but very very traditionally Malaysians mindset is like FD and then like even if you got Unit trust and mutual funds, you already considered like edgy already. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like don't don't stray beyond FD, you know. Yeah. Like what more stock market? Even like Bursa was like a foreign thing to a lot of people. What more the US stock market? Yeah. So I think I stumbled upon fire and then I really like the concept of fire. I'm like, you have a nest egg, you get a certain four percent withdrawal yeah. or something like that. Yeah. yeah, you get a percentage amount every every year, and then you just live off it. That I'm like, that For sounds the like next a, what twenty five yeah. thirty or something like that, right? It will never run out. Right? Yeah. So so yeah. the concept of fire is that your your nest egg never runs out. You can live forever. Yeah. You can live forever at four percent, and your money won't decrease yeah. because your nest egg will just retain, and then you just what just was that for you? Just curious because different people have different definitions, right? Mm-hmm. What was your fire uh, threshold, let, let, let's say? Well, my initial fire threshold was like, you know, if you're a single person, live a normal life, you know, eat at hawker center, yeah. eat mixed rice, uh, you know, 
Take public transport a bit. Yeah, take a bit. Drive a bit on the weekend. Thousand five, two thousand ringgit maybe. Go two local holidays, one overseas holidays a year. You know, that kind of like fire life. So it's like, I I achieved that fire number like about a few years ago already. So, so that is like if I'm a single person. Then if you like you know start having like girlfriend or you you want to plan for like future kids and all, then you have to increase your fire number. Yeah, that's why fat fire, right? Yeah. I think I think most people's fat fire is like they can live like like T twenty mm. So fire is like you live like you know M forty, <laughs> but if you want fat fire, actually most fat fire probably T five. Yeah, true. Yeah, so true. I think a lot of Malaysians, at least among personal finance people, their their fat fire target is like every month they will get at least around twenty k ringgit. Yeah. 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 And maybe fire target is like three to five k, from yeah. from the four percent. So, so fire number very easy to calculate. You just take your yearly expense times twenty five. Twenty five, yeah, four yeah. percent. So, yeah. so if you want five k a month, means sixty k a year. So sixty times twenty five, like five. one one million gives you forty k a year. So yeah, yeah. one point five million. Yeah. So if you got one point five million, you can leave five k ringgit. So then if fat fire will be just times five la. Ah, right, five fire Correct, times five la. Times four, times four. Times four, times four. So fair fire is like four five million. million uh, five six million? million? Yeah. 1.5 times six. Yeah. Or 1.5 times four. Yeah. Six million. So a lot of Malaysians, I think that is the range. Uh, fire around 1.5, fat fire around right, six right. million. So which I think a lot of Malaysians, I think if you if you do your investing properly, it's and, possible. Uh, it's, possible. it's possible to reach fire before 50. Fire, very, yeah, 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 yeah. Very possible. And if you like hardworking a bit before 40 or so easily. Yeah. But, but my investment journey moved very drastically. I used to, I started with individual stocks. And then after a while, I feel like this is, this is like Not nonsense. Yeah. I'll just stick with uh, ETFs. Then I started doing like S&P 500 ETFs. And then um, after that, I feel like, why am I doing S&P 500 ETFs when I don't even know what am I investing in? Then I started going back to stocks. And then, after that, I move on to like all kinds. I've tried everything from crypto, P2P, uh, equity, crowdfunding, everything. Even like investing in fine art, NFTs, everything. So now, these days I'm a bit of both. Um, you know, my portfolio spreads mainly in stocks and crypto. Yeah. And like, yeah, about equal. And then even and in stocks and crypto, I try to follow like the, like the 931. 931 ratio. So in stocks, I have a 931 of like my favorite stocks and then in crypto also. So like, like let's say in stocks, the 9 is like Tesla. So so my Tesla would be like three times bigger than my second favorite stock. Then my second favorite stock would three, be three, three times. So it's basically three, three, yeah, three. Then yeah. my second favorite stock would be three times bigger than my third favorite stock. And then after that, it's like miscellaneous for you to play around. Ichi hands, you know. So the, 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 the base top three is like just buy and hold. And then All the right. rest you know, if you want to itch your hands, you go and itch your hands. So has this, because, I mean, for the most part, you were working offsite, right, right? You're working remote. And that, I think that's like mm. the dream yeah. uh, geo-hack, right? Because yeah. you earn in US dollars, yeah. and then you live here, yeah. right? which is like yeah. worlds apart, right? Yeah. But now you have to relocate back yeah. to you, the US. Has that changed a little bit? Yeah, it definitely changed. Right. But because I, I took this job not, so much because of the money, but because I felt 
the team and the and startup, the, right? There's a vision, yeah, right? Yeah. It's it's quite fun. It's small team, and it's also the CEO is willing to invest a lot in like infrastructure, and I like that. Like, I think we we, we invested about like two hundred thousand US dollar on just like computers. Wow, and like, I mostly get free reign to use it, so it's it's an attractive position to be in. To like, you know, like you get all these like computing power to just like do experiments and test out your own uh, theories and stuff like that. So yeah, I jump on the opportunity and I think if, if you minus all the living costs, rental, it's worth it. Yeah. yeah. It, it will be, you'll probably earn less if you work remotely US dollar and live in Malaysia. Right? But I think it's worth Some it. Some of the experience yeah. and yeah. the people that you meet probably yeah. the intangible benefits. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. I really... highly encourage all Malaysians to try to do some remote work. Oh, yeah. to, to earn US dollar or even Singapore dollar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the 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 leverage is just too high and yeah. it, it it changes so much of like how you see the world and everything. Like but I think a lot of Malaysians still, you know, they they don't want to go out of their comfort zone. Or maybe I think maybe it's, it's hard. Like, I think uh, you know, I think it's it they want, but not many jobs because mm. remote work is only afforded to let's say what you do, virtual yeah, yeah, assistance, yeah. uh Maybe I don't know some back end yeah. work, right? Even for a lot of people who you know they want to go to Singapore and all that, but they have to be physically there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, the thing is about remote jobs, so you are competing with the entire world, so so it's like exactly it's more competitive. As well. Right. So you think yeah. that your cost of living is cheap, but someone in India yeah. say no, I'm yeah, cheaper. Yeah, and then like, someone yeah, in Vietnam say oh, I'm yeah, cheaper. Actually, yeah. yeah. So it's like it's not as easy. Uh, it's right? not as easy. True, true, true. That's yeah. not, it's not as easy. But, but, but it's right. La, the the geohack is sound the best because mm. at least from where I sit, the standard of living in Malaysia, especially if we can hit T20, T5, I mean, it's like, mm. it's not elite, elite private jet kind of, you know, level, but all your needs and wants will be taken care of. Uh, we are relatively convenient, yeah. convenient, you know, yeah. things like that. Yeah. I mean that's that's one of the I guess good and bad thing of my emotions are very easily satisfied. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's like you know the saying it's like chocolate, you know. It's like yeah. anything chocolate. Yeah. It's like got food to eat, can already, you know. It's like, you know, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, right. be, be satisfied, you know, just happy any. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's a good and bad thing. Like if like a lot of people, if you are like too stressful, then it's good. But if you like you really want to uh you know, push yourself and like hustle then maybe you can, you know. Yeah, you shouldn't be here. I, I I tell people, if you want to be a world beater, you should be in Malaysia. Yeah. <laughs> it's a fact, right? But the, so. the, the thing about low wages or low salary in Malaysia is like, it's bad for employee, but good for employer. <laughs> so it's, it's like, bad. if you want to start a business, yeah. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yeah. It's like, great, you know, it's like, you know, yeah. it's like, uh, yeah. That's true. And there's like, you know, pros and cons, but well, uh, it's just too attractive. So what, what, what would you advise people who want to start their fire journey? Mm. Like what what's what's the process like? I would say I, I see a lot of uh financial like content creator. You know, they, they emphasize growing your income first and like don't worry too much about saving. But I Oh I, really? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay. They a lot of people say like if you if you save, you know, ten percent of your three thousand regular salary is three hundred. What's that, right? Yeah, what's that? Nothing. It's like if you 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 have to focus on your income first before you know like don't worry too much about savings. I think they have to go hand in hand. Um, for me being a frugal person, 
actually helps me to increase my income because the, the reason is not so much about uh, the day-to-day saving amount, but it's more about the mindset. Let's say, let's say if I'm frugal already, right? That I know that I can leave. I already experimented like my, my lifestyle, right? I know that I can live on like this amount, this small amount per month. Let's say I, let's say I experiment living 1,000 ringgit a month and I done it for like two to three years. I know I can live at 1,000 ringgit a month. So, so if I, my income increased to like 20K. Yeah, you I, save I, 19. I, yeah. yeah, then you save 19. Or I can take risks. Let's say I know this job, like maybe, maybe this industry were bankrupt in six months but they're paying 30K, you know, but I, I'm willing to take this risk to go for this job. Like, like they pay 30K a month, but maybe I know they are going to go bankrupt within six months. This is the last yeah, few yeah, months. Like last few months to like, maybe there's like some hype industry or whatever, yeah. like crypto or whatever. <laughs> you like, you are willing to jump to that because you know that you can survive on very low. You know that after six months, no more income, income at zero, I'm still fine. So, so if, if let's say you start off your journey, you, you, your, your lifestyle is like 10K a month. Then, then for you to jump to a 30K a month and knowing that that industry is going to bankrupt in six months, you'll, be, you'll feel more hesitant. You'll feel like, what if suddenly I lost yeah, yeah. my Because you have a lot more liabilities. Yeah, I, like. I, my, my, my burn rate is 10K a month. Like, I cannot take the risk to go to an industry that might cut off my income within six sure. months like that. But, so, so, I would say being frugal is not so much about the, the dollar amount or ringgit amount you save, but it's more about, about mindset, knowing that you will be okay anyway. You'll be okay if you have no money. That's true. That, that mindset is very powerful. The, to know that you'll be fine, even without no matter what happens, money, right? allows you to take a lot of risks. Yeah. And I would say most of my uh, big gains in portfolio, they didn't come from diversification. They didn't come from like, you know, as much as I preach DCA, it's DCA won't like get you super rich. Yeah. But it's it's the it's the ideal thing for like most people. The what grew my portfolio the most is like just at that certain point, being have high conviction on a certain like stock or certain like crypto or certain like uh business and you put a significant amount in. And then you just uh wait. And to to be able to even take the action, right? Is is to know that you can survive even if that money is gone. So if you cannot reach that emotional level of like putting money in to know that even that money gone, then you'll be fine. Then it's very hard for you to put in that money. That's right. Yeah. So, so most of my big financial portfolio gains come from a few decisions, a few like high commission trades, and then it just grow from there. Yeah. But, you know, in, in the content creation space, I always try to, I, I actually preach more like Risk stuff. Because yeah, yeah. not many yeah. people can yeah. people can misunderstand yeah. what you yeah. say. The, mainly because I know that majority of people are not like me. So if you want to, you know, go more like high risk or degen, then you can message me. But my content mostly I try to uh, cater to like the masses. And and if you look at the the masses, right? Investing is already soft. Investing, just put your money into SP five hundred. It's like 30 years history, 30, yeah. 50 years history that showed. 8 to 10% compound annual gains every year. So like, you know, it's a very, very, it's almost like investing is already soft, you know, yeah. put some money in there, 
DCA, you know, put some money into like cash equivalent, like FD, money market fund. And then up to you to adjust your resource. If you're young, maybe you put more into stock market, less into like cash equivalent, like FD or MF. You are older, then you put more into cash equivalent stuff. Then you just like, you know, leave weight. Like, yeah. Yeah. Leave like a few percentage for like whatever, like gold or like or your speculative or Bitcoin or whatever. So it's like that for like for the masses, if you want to steadily invest, grow wealth, like there's like countless Countless times people wrote blogs explaining how to do this over and over again. It's all there. Yeah, it's all there already. So like, I always tell people like, investing is already solved. <laughs> it's like, like, just depend like how much, how much degen you want to go or like how much risk you want to take for like the really niche stuff. Yeah. Yeah. All right, man. Thanks, Dylan, so much. Uh, really enjoyed this uh, podcast. Um, before we go, you want to shout out your Instagram account. Any other things that you want to shout out? Any projects you're working on? Um, yeah, sure. My Instagram account is like shoulders of giants underscore. So shoulders plural, giants plural. So shoulders. In my head, of it's always giants. Dylan Sock. You know? <laughs> yeah. Then my if you want to follow my Twitter, I tweet more AI stuff there. So my Instagram more personal finance and like investing. Then Twitter more uh AI stuff. My Twitter is like SOG underscore on underscore bird underscore app. So SOG on bird app. Oh, not yeah. bad, not bad. Yeah, so, but, yeah, I always feel like my Twitter audience and my Instagram audience are very different because yeah. my Twitter is a bit more unhinged, more personal, like, also might be, like, more, like, internal jokes in, like, the AI sector, you know? So, so maybe, like, yeah, you can pick and choose what you want to follow. But, yeah, so these are my main two platforms. Maybe in the future we'll expand to TikTok or YouTube. I always say that, but, yeah, always so lazy and cannot find the prioritization of it. Mostly these days, I'm focused a lot on uh, doing a lot of like side projects, AI apps, side projects, and, and just researching like the cutting edge stuff because there's just too much coming out. So just trying to stay up to date. All right, guys, uh, you hear it here. I think this is probably our first podcast uh, on AI, or at least the first one where we go into this sort of uh, depth of discussion. Uh, guys, thank you so much for listening to our video. We'll see you in the next one. Peace. Bye-bye.